All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Grind Podcast. Today, uh, we have a special guest in, Justin Schaefer. What's up, buddy? Hey, how's it going, man? Good, good. I appreciate you taking the time out of your work day to schedule this podcast and talk a little bit about extreme mountain hunting. I'm yeah, ex- for sure. Glad to be here. I'm excited. So, so tell me a little bit about you. You know, I first learned about you from my good friend, Jonah Stewart. If you know, if anyone who knows Jonah Stewart, I've hunted with Jonah Stewart a few times on a brown bear hunt and also a doll sheep hunt. Jonah Stewart is about five foot seven. Don't take offense to that, Jonah, but a wrestler. On a good day, five seven. Yeah, yeah, boots. yeah. That's if he has his 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 tall boots on five five seven. But the dude is a phenomenal bow hunter. He's a stone cold killer, and he eats, sleeps, and breathes bow hunting. So I was kind of talking about this, and I, and I'd kind of seen you pop up on social media years and years ago, and I kind of asked Joan a little bit about you. I'm like, man, who's this Justin guy? This guy's a killer. He's like, oh yeah, the guy's this stone cold killer. And I'm like, man. And so I've kind of gotten to know, gotten to know you over the last few months or so it's been really interesting getting to know you and uh that's how i kind of made that connection initially but you used to be in the army i did yeah so i spent 25 years in the army stationed all over the last half of that spent up here in alaska where i retired and still live today but it's uh, pretty much spent my entire adult life from the time i graduated high school until retired two and a half years ago okay and what did you do in the army by trade, I was an airborne infantryman, um, my MLS 11 Bravo, uh, airborne ranger, spent a large majority of that as a stout sniper, sniper school instructor. That's majority of what my career was. Oh, okay, cool. Did you do any missions? I did, yeah. So uh, I was deployed multiple times uh, in uh, multiple theaters operation, um, the last one being Afghanistan. Okay, wow. I'm sure we could do a whole podcast on that, but um, that that's crazy. So... This kind of led me, did you live all over the world or did you always kind of reside in Alaska? No, I uh, was stationed in Alaska in 2002 and been here since. Before that, I was stationed at uh, Sniper School at Fort Benning, Georgia. I was stationed in Colorado, stationed in North Carolina, kind of all over the place. Okay. So, and the reason I ask you that to ask you this and, and the reason behind some of the qu- those questions are, gosh, if you look through your social media pages and if you... If you've been lucky enough to be in Justin's home, he's got big game from all over the world. And I'm just like, man, who, who is this guy? Where's he, where, where, where's he been and how's he gone all these places? So can, talk about, I, well, first off now, you're, you're no longer in the, in the Army. You're retired, I assume. And you just took a full-time job at Kuyu in the Guide and Outfitter program. Does that sound, is that accurate? Yeah, I, I retired two and a half years ago to take the job uh, at Kuyu. Brendan Burns, good friend of mine, uh, recruited me to take over his position as the Dayton Outfitter uh, Senior Director for Kuyu. And that's what I've been doing for the last two and a half years. Okay, cool. That's awesome. And I, I guess that's a good position for you being that you've uh, hunted all over with probably a lot of guides, out, guides and outfitters too, especially on, in your international hunts. Yeah, no, it's, it's a dream job for me. And, um, you know, Brendan was super focused about having somebody in the position that could relate to it. So I've held an assistant guide license and owned guide business in Alaska here for eight or nine years. And then, like you said, I've hunted all over the world with a of different outfitters. So kind of being able to walk the walk and talk the talk from an authenticity point is part of the reason that Brendan hired me to, to take over that position. For sure. You know, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it seems like it'd be a, a really good hire knowing what I know about you. So I, I wanted to talk about extreme mountain hunts on this podcast. And like, for example, not all hunts are the same. Some hunts are, you know, a little more low key while others are, are just extremely gnarly. And I had a friend about four or five years ago that was trying to get me to hunt Kyrgyzstan. And then he was trying to get me to hunt Africa. And I definitely wasn't interested in Africa. I didn't know much about Kyrgyzstan. And for those who don't know a lot about these hunts, it's just not interesting, especially if you're if you're chasing these these dreams in North America of big mule deer, elk, bear, moose, and then obviously Alaska, doll sheep, mountain goat caribou and so on and so forth so that that leads me to ask you this what was the motivation behind like hey i want to go hunt in kyrgyzstan i want to go 
do these next level type hunts. Like what was that inner, that inner feeling that motivated you to kind of explore outside North America? Yeah, for me, it's just, you know, the adventure aspect of it, uh, new places, new challenges, new species. And uh, that, that's been the driving force behind it. Find a country or find an animal that's interesting and, and piques my interest and then start putting the pieces in place to move forward financially, time off, travel, all the things that need to happen to make that adventure what's next. So, and a lot of those countries, you know, for, for people, it's just stepping out of their comfort zone. You know, you put a Stan country name and, you know, it immediately you know, incites fear into people, you know, unknown, not wanting to travel outside of their comfort zone. So why well, you don't see a lot of people on those big destination hunts like that. Right. Is it the adventure of putting together the project, the hunt, doing the research, the outfitter? Is it the travel? Is it the culture for you? Um, yeah, what, for what, me, it's everything. Like, I, I love the logistics side of it, like putting the hunt together, all those pieces of the puzzle, you know, the timing of it, the, the flights, the travel, the booking, the visas, the passports, you know, all of that stuff goes into it. it it's a big buildup for me, putting the gear list together, testing gear, just that whole gamut that goes into the pieces that help make those types of hunts successful. And then you throw in the different cultures, the food, the travel, the new places, new mountains, and just all of that is appealing to me. The, the process from the start to the finish is what I live for. Yeah. There's nothing quite like it. I'm glad that I took the leap of faith and tried out Kyrgyzstan. And it was interesting. Once I'd made that decision in my mind that that was something I was going to do, just the reason I was just so enthralled, enthralled with the research side of things and reaching out to people who'd been with Pacific Outfitters and trying to learn what their experience was like and, and trying to learn the elevations and conditions. And, and like you said, gear, obviously you're, you're going to, you're going to be uh, pretty heavily into the, into the gear side being what your, what your role is there at your, your new job. But yeah, and I'm a gear nerd, gear nut to begin with. So I'm all about the latest, greatest and being able to take them out in the field and play with them. So each new hunt unravels new possibilities for new gear, new equipment, and that kind of stuff just just excites me. Yeah, it's just exciting. Now, in you have you done any of those extreme hunts with a, with a bow? I know that you've. Let's let's talk about ibex for a bit. And I think that's how we first connected was my ibex hunt, and we started talking a little bit about ibex and how you're going back to Kyrgyzstan. Did did you just if you were like me, I was like man, I, I got this Ibex. I want to, I want to hunt mid Asian. And then it's like, okay, well, what Ibex am I going to, am I going to hunt next? Is, is that kind of how it was for you as well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so, uh, sheep are my favorite. I mean, to me, sheep is, cool. um, and if you're going to look at that next tier of animal, uh, as far as cool guy factor and adventure, like Ibex are kick ass, you know, there's a bunch of different species. They live in cool, hardcore mountain country. They're in different countries. So there's a lot of variety there. And just like we talked about a little bit earlier, it's just that, that next adventure, that new place to go and that new species of Ibex. So Kurdistan's got mid-Asian Ibex. We've already looked at, or we've already booked hunts to Mongolia for 2022 for high Thai Ibex and Gobi Ibex. We're working on Turkey uh, to hunt Bezor Ibex. You know, it's just checking off the next country and the, the, the next species. Gosh, man, that sounds exciting. So that was kind of next on my hit list was Altai. Altai Ibex, what, why did you decide to go with Altai next? And how did you make that connection with an outfitter over there? Yeah, so um, I've, I've been to Mongolia uh, several times with the military. And Mongolia has just always been one of those dream hunts, you know, the dream destination, dream hunt. Uh, like I said, Ibex are just cool. The horn configuration, the country they live in. And that was just kind of the the next stepping stone after mid-Asian Ibex was to hunt high Altai uh, Ibex and then being able to combo that with, with Gobi Ibex. So just started doing a little bit of online research. And as I'm sure you're aware of, I go to all the shows with Kuyu and some downtime at the shows, I started just hitting up outfitters, talking to them and just started, you know, doing the research side of that from there and found an outfitter that we wanted to go with and started talking about the logistics, the timing, uh, the feasibility of being able to hunt both Ibex species out of one camp is super, super tough uh, in Mongolia because you've got the Gobi that lives down in the Gobi desert and then the, the high Altai that lives in the Altai mountains. So 
there's a lot of logistics and travel that goes in place with uh, um, working out, uh, on both of those species during the same trip. Yeah. So how's that going to work? Are you, is that going to be an extended trip or how are you going to swing that? It, it adds a couple of days onto it, but we were able to find, um, we booked with Mongol Tour is who we ended up booking with. Um, and they've got a camp kind of located centrally between the two locations. So it's going to be some some early day, early mornings and late nights with travel, but uh, we're able to, to hunt both species out of the same camp without having to, to fly to a new destination. So that, that makes the logistics of it a lot more appealing, being able to, to hunt both species out of a single camp. Yeah, that, sound, that sounds really interesting. You'll have to let me know how that one goes because that's definitely something I have on the radar. I'm telling you guys, if you start researching one of these and you eventually make it on a hunt, it becomes somewhat addicting. Absolutely. It becomes somewhat addicting and then you're like, man, what's the next Ibex I can take, you know? Then you start thinking, how am I going to mount these things? What kind of what kind of room am I going to build so I can display these things? And they're the coolest stinking animals, like the, with that big old beard and those the horn configurations like you mentioned and, and the terrain that they live in, they're unbelievable animals. Yeah, and um, I mean, there, there's just a, you know, a lots of different horn configurations, lots of different species with them. I hunted Spain four years ago for all four of the, the species in Spain. They're just cool critters. Yeah, super cool. And that's a little bit different type of hunt, right? It's a little more low-key. It is, yeah, for sure. It's a lot more low-key. Uh, ba- everything's based out of uh, hotels or, you know, that type of lodging, and then you travel out to the hunt areas each day. Uh, the train's not nearly as, as steep or extreme. There is some some uh, ruggedness to some of the country where the Besete and the, the Gritos Ibex live, but um, not near the type of, of hunting that we've done in Kurdistan or, or we'll see in Mongolia or, you know, other mountain species around the world. Yeah, definitely. And that's, that's something I've kind of heard. Yeah. Cool. Nonetheless, I mean, Spain is a super cool country, just the culture, the history and the food there is absolutely ridiculous. It's, it's one of those must go to check the block adventures. You're into that. Yeah, definitely. In fact, I visited Barcelona probably seven years ago and I absolutely fell in love with the country. I'm like, man, this place is unreal. And I wasn't doing any hunting. I was just doing travel. But like, like you said, yeah. the culture, the food, man, the people in Spain is just a kick-ass country. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, man, if if I didn't live out west and and wasn't in love with the, these backcountry adventures that I do, I think I would just be traveling and hunting all the time. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm obviously absolutely spoiled. I grew up in Colorado hunting the west, being able to be stationed in Alaska and living here, you know, the last 18, 19 years. I mean, I am spoiled with the, the over-the-counter um, DIY opportunities that I have. At the same time, I just, you know, the mountains are calling and those countries are calling and just want to plan the next adventure, the next cool cool trip to the next country, hunting uh, a new species. Yeah, absolutely. And gosh, man, it's like there's there's only so many days in a, in a year. And, uh, it's hard, it's hard to balance all these things. And we, you and I both know what kind of work it takes to put in, to be successful out there, especially, uh, where you're a predominantly a bow hunter, killing Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young, Pope and Young in this case, obviously with bow uh, animals, it, it's tough to do. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it financially, uh, time-wise it's a huge commitment, uh, and huge investment to hunt outside of your home state especially on those bigger international hunts for those tier higher end species. Yeah. And that's a two week commitment. Aside from the money, that's a two week commitment. That's half a month. Think of all the things at work (laughs) and at home that don't get done. Yeah. I mean, there's only so much time, you know, vacation time. There's only so much money, you know, you really got to prioritize and uh, decide what's important to you and and what you want to focus on. Right. Yeah. And where me, uh, I got a young family too, so it makes it just a little bit tougher. I hate to see my little kids grow up before my eyes, so I've got to balance that too, which is kind of tricky. Yeah, it's absolutely a balancing act. That's a, a good way to put it. And if you ask my wife, I don't balance. <laughs> 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 oh, man, that's funny. So I want to talk about your doll sheep escapades. Yeah, for sure. How many doll sheep have you taken with a bow? So I've taken eight doll sheep total and five or six of those with a bow. Okay. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I think this last one from 2020 was number, pretty sure that was number six with a bow. Dude, what's it like hunting doll sheep with a bow year after year? 
Yeah. So honestly, there's nothing better. So that is my number one favorite go-to species to hunt. It's the most important hunt for me personally. It's the most important hunt for me professionally. August 10th every year is my Christmas morning. You know, that's the day that I look forward to. That's the day that is on the calendar planned every year. It's your hunt. It's the hunt for Justin Schaefer. Absolutely. It is my top tier hunt that gets put on the calendar every single year that I look forward to more than any other hunt. And what, what type of hunt is that? Is that a, you, I'm assuming you're spiking out for that. It's a backpack hunt. Is it a two week yeah, deal? Is it a 10, 10 day deal? Tell me about what that's, that hunt's like. How do you prepare for that? How do you hunt it? Luckily for me as a, a resident, I've got lots over the counter hunting opportunities. So, you know, every December I'm putting in draws for those top tier units to try and be able to hunt those better areas. But when those don't happen, there's lots of over-the-counter DIY opportunities within the state. So a lot of those, most of the time, logistics, it, it's going to take a fly-in. You're going to be jumping into a cub, flying into a, a riverbed or, or a strip out in the mountains. And then it's what we like to refer to as an unsupported hunt. You're living out of your backpack for X amount of days, depending on you know what you've planned and how long you end up out there. So all the logistics go into being able to support yourself and living out of that backpack while you're out there. That's awesome. And, and how many days do you typically plan for? Yeah, so generally my, my sheep hunts are anywhere from seven to 10 days is what I plan for logistically, just based off of, again, what I've drawn, my schedule for work, my hunt schedule for other stuff going on that fall. But usually always set aside a solid week with a travel day on each end. So nine days on average is, is what I'll spend logistically planning for sheep hunts for doll sheep. Gotcha. All right, guys, I talk about base map all the time, and I'm not going to stop talking about it until you give it a try. So they come out with a new offline map that's four to five times faster, which means you're going to download them faster. You can actually get out of the app and do other things, whether it's a text or watch a movie or whatever you're doing, jump on Instagram, and your maps still download. Now, if you need extra space, you can delete the maps and retrieve them from the cloud later, and you don't have to re-download them, which I think is fantastic. If you're currently vested in another mapping software like Onyx or or whatever else, you can transfer all your waypoints over your tracks, all your data. Give it a try. Go to basemap.com forward slash mealyfreak, and that's how you get that 20% off discount code. So give it a try. I promise you, you won't regret it. Make the switch. How many days does it take you to locate a shooter? And what's a shooter? Is it any legal RAM for you or... Yeah, for me, I'm I'm not a big time trophy hunter when it comes to sheep. I've killed a couple of uh, really nice rams. I drew a two dad sheep tag three years ago and killed uh, my biggest ram, which is 161. Um, but for me, any legal sheep is, is what I'm targeting. So, and it, it varies from year to year. It varies from mountain ranges we hunt, depending on the winters we have, the winter die off, and then just being able to find sheep. Some years are easier than others. Last year was tough. The year before was pretty easy. You know, so it, it just varies. You hope to get on sheep early yeah, um, and be able to watch them and pattern them and be able to try and get into bow range and kill them. But, uh, you know, sometimes it's a grind where you're trying to dig out a legal ram in a week, let alone passing up legal sheep to try and find a trophy. So, yeah, I, I can imagine it's a grind, major grind. Absolutely. I mean, those sheep live in some rugged country and, you know, they're not a high density animal. So it, it's funny you know, I got a big dose of reality with a buddy of mine. We hunted the Brooks Range four years ago, and we flew up a few days early to, to do some scouting. And you fly over drainage after drainage after drainage that all looks like sheep country. It's all green. It's got water. It all looks the same. And, you know, it's country that you couldn't walk in a week on the ground, and there's not a sheep in the drainage. Oh, wow. You know, in the last six drainages that you flew over, and then you hit the next drainage, and there's sheep on both sides of it. So it's just, there's a lot of logistics, a lot of gamble. Like I said, they're not a high density animal. So you, you could walk drainage after drainage for a week and not find a sheep or find that honey hole that, that's holding rams and, and you've got multiple targets opportunity. Yeah, I could see that. That could be that could be utterly frustrating too. There's obviously winter die off that, that comes into play there. What, what about your strategy? Once you find a sheep, how do you get that sheep killed with a bow? Yeah, so a lot of it is just where they're at. The, that earlier time frame in the year when it's just the rams hanging out together, they're, I, I don't want to call them patternable, but you can watch what they're doing day to day, where they're watering, the areas that they're feeding. 
And then just like any other time mountain hunting, a lot of it is getting the wind right. So I'm typically pretty aggressive when it comes to, to bow hunting and I'll push the envelope a lot of the times, but if the wind's not right, you're, you're not going to kill them. So a lot of that is just setting up and, and, and trying to figure out patterns of, of where they're moving. And then you either use that to your advantage to pick ambush points or stock lanes to be able to cut them off as they're moving to and from areas. So you don't bet them up and stock them in. You're, you're literally trying to probably ambush them. Is that where you've had the most success? No, not necessarily. It just all depends. I mean, I've killed rams in their beds and I've killed rams moving to and from feeding and watering areas. It just all kind of depends on them and where they're at in association with the train and the drainage and the winds. There's a lot of factors that goes into it. Gotcha. So what are doll sheep really good at? when it comes to evading predators, would you say? Like, what's the hardest part about, for example, antelope, their eyes. Like, it's like, how, how the heck did they see me? How did they spot me? Like, what is it with doll sheep? Do they have a, a premium sense, per se, when it comes to evading predators? Yeah, for sure. They, they're just like antelope. It, it's their eyesight by far is their best sense. So they are super keen. And then like most mountain species, those older adult animals, you know, they stay up high and they keep good visibility of the terrain around them. You know, they use that to their advantage and, and it just makes it tough. And then, you know, that's secondary with wind, like any other ungulate, you know, you're not gonna, you, sometimes you can fool their eyes, but you're never going to fool their nose. You know, if they wind you, they're gone. But by far, I would say that doll sheep, their, their best sense is their vision for sure. Yeah. So what do you, is there days that there's no play on these animals? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've spent three, four days watching the same ram or band of sheep where they're just in areas you can't, you couldn't get to them with a rifle, whether it's a cliff or, or you know, where, what the way the terrain lays out, there are absolutely days and sheep that you just have to sit there and watch and, and hope that they move to a new spot or that the wind changes for you. Gotcha. You've got to be super lethal then. <laughs> I mean, pat yourself on the back here, but you can ill afford mistakes if you're waiting four or five days just to get an opportunity on an animal. Like, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I would rather be lucky than good for me. A lot of it just comes down to putting the work in the off season prior to like, I make sure that all the gear I've got and need is top notch and that it's working the way it's supposed to. And then, you know, whether I'm bow hunting or rifle hunting, I'm putting that time in behind that weapon on the trigger, you know, whether I'm dry fire and shooting in my garage during the winter, I want to make sure that if I get that opportunity to, to take a shot, that I'm going to be able to execute that shot under the circumstances. So it's all about putting in the time and the work and the effort and the practice behind your weapon of choice before that moment opens itself up for you. Yeah. And I, I think that breeds confidence, right? When you put in that much work, you have your gear that much, that dialed, you know, all your equipment's going to work, you know, where it is, where it's stored in your pack, you know, your limitations, you know, you, you know how you can push yourself. I just feel like that's going to give you confidence to get the job done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, confidence side of it is huge, whether it's in your, your physical conditioning, your, your mental attributes or your gear, a lot of that's just built back into muscle memory and, and making that routine, whether you're pulling the trigger on a rifle or cutting the shot on your bow, you know, that when you settle it, fly that it's going to go where it's supposed to go because you've already done it a thousand times before you got into that scenario. Right. So what, what, uh, what's that range you try to close the distance to when uh, getting in on a doll? Yeah. So for me, I'm, I'm not one of those guys that likes to get super close. I think that once you get inside the comfort zone of an animal, hundred yards for doll sheep, every 10 yards you get, you're just giving them that much more advantage and that more ability to use their senses. And, and as you know, from hunting these animals, they just seem to have a sixth sense and you get inside of, you know, 40 yards and you could be doing everything right and they still blow out. So for me, I don't push that envelope to try and get as close as I can. And a lot of it just comes up with the shot scenario, um, you know, how the animal's facing, what the wind's doing, and then what the train's like, you know, whether it's a steep uphill, downhill, if there's a bunch of camber in the shot. But for me, anywhere in that 40 to 60 yard range, like I look at that animal as dead. Gotcha. Uh, you know, and I'll push the envelope further. If the opportunity arises to get closer, you know, I will. But for me, I get inside that 40 to 60 yard range with my bow and I'm not going to push it to get any further. I'm going to take the first good shot that I have available to me because there's so many factors that can go wrong. The wind can switch. You can kick rocks out. 
run into a sheet that you didn't see in a, right. there's just a lot to go wrong. So the first good shot opportunity I get, I'm going to, I'm going to send it. Gotcha. I love it, man. 40 to 60. He's dead. That's, 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 yeah. some, that's some confidence right there. Yeah. I mean, I shoot my bow every single day, multiple times a day at, at some long distances. So I can dial to 130 on my bow and I shoot that confidently every day. I mean, that's not the distance that I'm going to shoot an animal, but it's nice to have that backup and that ability to send a second arrow if you need it. Right. Um, but what it does, like we talked about earlier, you talked about is the confidence. Like for me to be able to, to pull up and, and shoot a six inch bullseye at 130 yards, when I'm standing there at 70, that thing looks giant, you know? Yeah, and, and definitely. I can, I can absolutely torch that thing. You know, I can put it in the X without a second thought. Right. And I think you said something really important right there. And I talked about this on a podcast with a Matthews engineer and it's like, you got an, you got an arrow in the animal. You've got to do everything you can to get another arrow in that animal to slow him down and catch up to him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You muff that shot at 40 and you put it back in the guts or you hit him in the ass and he runs out there at 120. I don't have to try closer. I have the ability to dial that on my site and, and launch a bomb and have pretty good confidence that I can get another arrow into that animal if I need to. Slowing down, speed up the blood loss, and hopefully yep. recover that animal, which, you know, chances are you get another arrow in him, you got a great shot at recovering it. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. All sheep, man. That's like, it's like one of the pinnacles of hunting in North America. It's, it's something that we all dream of. I've been fortunate enough to do it one time, hopefully do it again one day. Maybe I'll become a resident one day. Who knows? But the time's limited on hunting that that's extreme mountain hunting. That is, that's hard living. It's tough hunting. The opportunities are few. And I go back to my experience being up there and it was a, it was a grind. I took me five days to find a legal ram. And you know, you, you go in, you go in with anticipating, Oh, I want a heavy ram. I want an 11. I want a 12 year old. And you're seeing all these sheep and you're hiking all these miles and the days go by and you're not seeing what you thought you should see. Right. And, yep. and, and then it, be, and then it became for me, why on earth would I pass a legal ram? You know, I'd say yeah, this and it comes down to where your, your mental ability is just as important as physical ability there. Be able to have that mental toughness to endure those environmental conditions, living out of your pack, putting those miles in the mountains, um, dealing with crap weather. And then, like you said, not seeing animals. Right. The mental grind uh, as well as a physical grind. Right. And a lot of the appeal. The harder it is, the better and more rewarding it is in the end. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the more rewarding is the harder you work, the more you appreciate it and the more it, and the more it means to you. So I recently got off a, a, a backcountry uh, black bear hunt and sounds kind of lame, right? Like, oh, it's a black bear hunt? Dude, this was one of the, and I've, I've done Kyrgyzstan now, I've done doll sheep, I've done brown bear. And, and some pretty tough high country mule deer hunts. And this was probably one of the hardest hunts I've ever done. And here, and here's why 25 miles in, which sounds silly to even work that hard for a black bear, right? Yeah. The drought conditions, there wasn't a lot of water and steep, steep mountain drainages that you had to drop elevation and lose energy and all that water and hydration just to fill up your water. Right. And so it becomes a game of strategy to survive out there and not to say you're on your wits end and you're, you're about to die, but like, think about it. Every decision you make is based on strategy. Now the type of hunt I was on is, is different in the, from the Brooks in the sense that the Brooks has a lot of water, right? Yep. You bring a filter, there's a lot of opportunities to get water. So this particular black bear hunt, there wasn't water, there wasn't seeps, there wasn't wallows, there was nothing but water down at the bottom. And it was, you didn't want to go down there. You're like, there's no way I climbed all this work to get up here. So you had to pack. We, we pack, I packed six liters of water because I'm like, I'm not going down there. Yeah. But that, no, you <laughs> never want to give up vertical feet, man. It, it, no, you don't. It, it just, species aside, you know, mountains are mountains. It's tough. It doesn't matter what animal you're hunting. Like you said, there's lots of factors in there and water is a huge factor. One of those things is you've got to plan for, you got to strategize, You've got to have water to stay. Yeah, you got to have water to stay. But that's that's kind of the appeal is the strategy of surviving out there. But you don't just want to survive. You you want to be somewhat comfortable, right? You don't want to be like miserable. Yeah, I mean, nobody wants to be miserable. So you want to embrace the grind, embrace the suck. But at the same time, you don't want to invite, you know, that's where good gear, 
and good planning and good strategy comes into play on these hunts. We're not out there to be miserable, but at the same time, you know, we want to earn it. Yeah. At the same time we want to earn it. So giving up elevation, that that's a big no, no. We, we were dealing with heat, these big open hillsides and they were dry and it, it was like the sun just radiated heat. So, I mean, the temperature was 80, but I mean, the hillside felt like 90, 95 and there wasn't shade. So um, yeah. overheating and heat exhaustion was a real factor. And you only had so much water to drink a day. So you had to kind of pick and choose where you put your effort. Right. And, and that was, yep. that was sort of fun too. It's like, man, we were, I was hunting with Muley Freak Tyler, my buddy, Tyler Okamura. He's, he's a tough son of a gun. He's one of those smaller guys that just goes hard in the paint. Right. And, uh, you know, nah. he, he's almost tough to, a, to a fault where in my opinion, I don't agree with some of the decisions he makes and he wants to do things just because he's tough enough to do it. And I'm, yeah. I, and I'm just like, uh, dude, I, I'm all about killing a giant. I'll do whatever it takes, but that doesn't sound like a good idea. For example, we were setting up on this knob where I eventually killed that, that black bear and another one came out and he's like, well, let's go cut the distance and, and try to get on that other one. I'm like, dude, these are black bears and that bear is rutting. So chances are you get over there, you hike over there. You don't even know if you have water and then you get over there and that black bear is probably nowhere to be found. And, and then what kind of situation are you in? I said, ah, I'm good, man. I'm going to sit right here and I'm going to wait for this other bear to come out. Yeah, it's a balancing act for sure. So I'm, I'm kind of like your buddy. I'm that guy that that it gets singular focus and puts blinders. <laughs> yeah, and lucky for me, I've, I've surrounded myself with, with good hunting buddies, good partners that probably have a little bit more sense and uh, a little bit smarter than I am to help <laughs> yeah. a lot of the time. Just, I'm just... I'm a grinder. I'll just go, 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 and work out the consequences later. Yeah, and yeah. a lot of times you trouble. That's funny, but but it takes a good hunting partner like that, right? It was, you know, for sure. I, I was fine waiting out this spot where we were, where we already had the elevation, where we had a decent, where water was semi close by. But he wanted to go up and around this mountain. I'm like, oh my gosh! I'm like, why are we gonna do that? I'm like, you know what? It's new country. He's right. We're not seeing this stuff here. I could be more patient, but he, his, he's lost his patience. I'm like, okay, I'll go with you. Now, I wasn't – without Tyler, I probably wouldn't have went over there. But, you know, we went over there, and we hunted, and, and we, we hit the honey hole. So it was like it was him pushing me to do that. Yep. I otherwise wouldn't have done it. But at the same time, when, once we got over there, he wanted to go harder. And I'm like, uh, I don't know if that's a good idea. And I was able to rein him back. Well, turns out that black bear that he wanted to go chase – actually looped around the mountain and came within 200 yards of him. So it worked out and I kind of yeah. reined him back and was like, dude, he ain't going to be over there. Just chill out wait for another opportunity. Yep. So it was interesting how that, that kind of worked out, but you know, back to the doll sheep thing, the strategy of hunting doll sheep, I imagine it's pretty fun for you. You're obviously work in the hunting industry. You work for Kuyu. Kuyu specializes in a lot of high end gear so it's probably really fun for you living off your back and out of your pack and trying to figure out how you can not only survive, but thrive and ultimately come home with a doll sheep with a bow. Like you're afforded one of the premium opportunities in the hunting world being that A, you work in the outdoor industry and B, you are an Alaskan resident and you can hunt doll sheep every single year. No, absolutely. For sure. It's, it's one of those opportunities that I take for granted. And like I said, I look forward to every year, plan for every year and just being able to, to work for the, the company that I do and have that uh, access to the gear and the innovation and then put all that to practical use on these tough mountain hunts. You know, it's just, it, it, it's super exciting and, and, you know, just a, a, the perfect scenario for me. Yeah. So I want to hear a story. I want to hear a story about how you got yourself in a pickle one time on an extreme mountain hunt. Was there ever any time that you're like, man, I made the wrong decision or you sensed a little bit of fear or you're scared or is, can you talk about any time that you got in a little bit of a pickle? Oh man, I do dumb stuff all the time. Like I said, so, <laughs> you know, when I'm hunting solo and I don't have somebody to rein me in, I do a lot of dumb stuff. I mean, last year when I killed my, my Ram, I was 6.2 miles straight line from getting back to my truck. So really probably eight or nine mountain miles. And I'd already told myself after I killed the Ram, I'm like, you know, be smart, don't be dumb. You're going to do this in two trips. And uh, I boned out that Ram and I was like, I don't want to walk tomorrow. And I stuck all that sheep, 
all my camp, everything that I packed, 130 plus pounds and headed down the mountain. And, you know, I paid for that thing for weeks. I, I tore a ligament in my knee. Ooh. Just one of those dumb things where if I would have just stuck with the plan, I would have been better off just making two trips in, pulling out 60, 70 pound loads instead of trying to do it all at once. But I mean, I've spent many cold, sleepless nights on the mountain you know, putting myself to pickles, being aggressive, trying to push the limit. Uh, and, and I've paid for that, um, being wet, being cold, being miserable, and uh, sleeping on the side of a mountain with just survival gear. <laughs> so you've, you've done a few uh, nights out on the mountain without without a tent. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, yeah, that... yeah no of those sleepless, wet, cold nights. How is it doing the doll sheep with the, uh, with the grizzly bear factor? Does that ever worry you? Is that something that you ever, do you run across many of them or how's that for you? Yeah, no. So for me, I don't, I don't know. I'm probably a little bit dumb again. I don't have a fear of bears. Like I'm not worried about being attacked by a bear when I'm out there. The things that I fear and worry about is when you leave your camp uh-huh. and back to a bear that's destroyed your camp. And uh, two years in the Brooks, I almost had that issue. I'd come in, set up my camp on a, a water source in a big saddle between two uh, ridges, wicked big game trail that came right to the middle of the saddle. And, you know, I just assumed moose and caribou and wasn't even thinking about bears, set up my camp and to chase these sheep that I had glassed at the head of the drainage and blew a stalk and was coming back to camp that night. And I looked down the hill and here's this giant blonde grizzly bear on that trail on a path heading straight for my tent. You know, oh, got my pack, got my sleeping bag, got everything I need to be comfortable and, and be out there for the next week. And the race was on. He was heading straight for it. And I was <laughs> yelling, screaming, throwing rocks. And, and the, luckily for me, the bear got to the tent before I did, but didn't like what he smelled and ended up blowing out of there. But, you know, it could have been a, a super bad scenario if that bear decided that he was going to own that camp. Yeah, that, that worked out in your favor, I'd say. Yeah, got super, super lucky there. <laughs> Tell me this. So when you're bow hunting doll, are, do you also carry a grizzly bear tag in your pocket? Yeah, so whenever the opportunity's there, no matter what I'm hunting and where, if there's an open season, I've got a tag in my pocket. So, And it just so happened that when I was hunting sheep on, on that south slope of the brooks that grizzly bear was open. So if he was going to stick around chewing on my tent, he was going to get an arrow. <laughs> so if, if you're hunting doll and you see a big old grizzly bear, is that something you, is that something you're going to drop down and go try to kill? Or is that like, I'm not, I'm not paying attention to that grizzly bear. Oh, no, it all depends on the scenario. So again, like I said, I'm, I'm super singularly focused and, and easily distracted with that. Like if, if I don't have a good ram and a good spot to go chase and I see a grizzly bear, I'm going to immediately shift focus and go try and kill that bear. Oh, okay. So that, that, that's probably what I would do as well. I, I think it'd yeah. be so fun dropping in. In fact, when I was with Jonah, I, I carried my bow and my rifle for the entire nine days, and I was trying to drop in on a grizzly. Unfortunately, I never found one. We did see a sow and a, and a cub, but yeah, I, I just think that'd be so cool dropping in on an Arctic grizzly with a bow. Yeah, and, and just like passing up legal rams, you know, there's, again, bears are not high-density animals, and, and to give up that opportunity to go chase you know, an elite species, uh, grizz, you know, I just, I'm not the guy that's going to walk away from it. Yeah, that's cool. So if you killed one on day four on a nine day hunt, what are you going to do with him? Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to skin him out. I'm going to flesh him, turn him and depending on where I'm at from my base camp or from my vehicle or from the airstrip, that's where, where I'll base that scenario. I mean, when I go into a sheep hunt, the sheep is obviously the primary focus and I'm not going to do anything that's going to take me out of that game. So logistically, you know, I'll be running that in my head as far as or not. I need to pack that hideout, call in a uh, transporter to come pick it up. Okay. So you'll do that then I've sometimes. I've always got salt in camp as well. So. Oh, okay. Cool. All right, guys. I also want to talk to you about the snap release bow cover. The new snap release bow cover provides you the option to snap close your cover for greater surface protection on your strings, cables, and cams. It's never fun when you get the strings wet and then a dust storm rolls in and then you got all that gunk in your bow. You don't want it. It's extremely lightweight, 6.5 ounces, fits a wide variety of bows and is extremely water resistant. Get yours today. Protect your bow from dust, rain, snow, and other elements of weather. www.muleyfreak.com. Check it out. So how many grizzlies have you taken with a bow? 
I have taken probably five or six grizzly slash brown bear with a bow. Okay. And uh, taken another, I've killed my big, uh, I've, I've killed two peninsula brown bears with rifle. Oh, okay. What's it, what's it like dropping in on a grizzly with a bow? Oh, I mean, it, it's super exciting. So I've, I've hunted all over the world for all kinds of species, um, lots of cool animals, lots of cool country, but probably one of the coolest stocks and hunts I've ever been on uh, was three years ago with my buddy Wyatt Bowles from Epic, Out, Epic Outdoors and we were caribou hunting. And uh, we spotted this grizzly working the riverbed, digging up brown squirrels. And uh, we got the wind right, got ahead of him about 130 yards and uh, ran out of cover, you know, open tundra on the north slope of the brooks and always carry a predator call with me and, and gave that to Wyatt. And Wyatt started yelping on that fond distress. And that bear turned his head, looked in our direction and, and came straight for us. And Wyatt was running the rangefinder in the call and, and he's just counting down. He's like 120, 103. 78, you know, and just oh, the wow. building is this grizzly is on a string coming to us. And that bear got to 33 yards and turned broadside to try and cut our wind. And, and as soon as he turned, I zipped a, an arrow straight through him, but just absolutely, I mean, like the peak of adrenaline rush right there for sure. Just super stock, super cool scenario. Arrow zipped clean through that bear. He didn't know what hit him. He ran 40 yards and piled up dead in sight. Man, if that is an extreme adventure hunting, I don't know what is. You guys were in the wide open? Yeah, well, we were right on the edge of a river uh, oh, okay. bottom hand. We were just tucked in behind two small willows, you know, just a little bit of brush with some backdrop. But all he cared about was coming to eat, you uh-huh. know, was, was was making that noise. Interesting. Super interesting. How far did he go? Uh, he, he went 40 yards. Yep. Zipped him straight through both lungs, dead broadside, arrow went 40 yards past him, bouncing off the river rocks and piled up, tumbling at 40 yards on a dead run. That's amazing. Now, what kind of broadhead did you use for Grizzly? Yeah, so um, I use several broadheads for almost okay. everything. I shoot the 1.5 and the 2-inch. Yeah, they're good um, broadheads. both in my quiver, and uh, I'll, I'll base it off of shot distance. You know, the, the only time that I'll switch that up is, is if I'm moose hunting you know, or hunting something that's super dense, super thick animal, but... I use sever broadheads for 99.9% of everything that I hunt. Gotcha. Now, Jonah has a theory on grizzlies. He believes that the best thing you can do is shoot a grizzly or brown bear with a expandable. And here's why. is because when that expandable hits them, the wound channel so big that they immediately know they're effed when they get hammered. Because yeah. they can feel it, right? Versus a fixed, he says that, a lot of times he's seen guys hit him with fixed, he's hit him with fixed, and they go looking for whatever whapped him. And he said it can be kind of a little bit of a sketchy situation. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, if anybody's going to know, it's going to be Jonah. I mean, that dude's killed more bears and, and been on more bear hunts than, than anybody I know with a bow. Right. And I don't know if that's something you'd ever thought of, but but it probably if, if you've never thought of that or heard that, it probably makes sense anyway, huh? Yeah, you know, you, you, you put a two-inch hole through their lungs, and, and they're going to know it. Yeah, they're going to know they're in trouble. Yeah, and I've heard stories about how them, them bears will go looking, and, and, you know, they'll obviously bite. Sometimes they'll go looking for whatever hammered them, and sometimes yep. they'll just run off. And it wouldn't be a good situation if you were alone on a solo hunt, and he went looking for you, and you didn't have a sidearm, or, you know, that could get a little bit sketchy. But that's all part of the adventure, right? Yep. No, and, and that's why when you, you let it fly and you hit those big bears, those big, aggressive, mature boars, you just got to freeze in your tracks. Um, you know, a, a great example of that is Brendan on his big coastal brown bear video that we shot a couple of years ago in the footsteps of giants. And, you know, he absolutely pounded that bear. And when it came up over the bank, you know, Brendan just dropped and froze. And, you know, that bear looked right past him and didn't see a threat and then, you know, wandered off. Right. I, I did notice that, and you know, in that film, no one ever talked about that strategy. There wasn't any like voiceover or graphics kind of explaining that, but I figured that's what he was doing. And I'm guessing that his guide advised him to do that. And he's probably hunted, hunted a few brown bear before, but I thought that was really cool that strategy. And he did it with such confidence, just got down. And that, you're, like you said, he'd already hit the bear by the time he got down. I mean, right? Like, but yeah, he arrowed that bear, and I mean, he absolutely torched him. And he'll tell you that when that bear came up over the uh, ocean bank and he, he hit him eye to eye at four yards, Brendan could see the blood coming out of his nose. And he knew that at that point he couldn't smell it. 
Right. He thought that uh, quick. That's pretty impressive. I yeah, wouldn't have thought about smartest, that. The, the smartest thing to do for him was just to freeze at that point. Right. That's and, and once crazy. The bear, you know, come up over the top, looked past Brendan, realized that there wasn't a threat, then that bear turned to, to run. That's incredible. Yeah. It's, he's, for those of you who haven't seen that, you should go check that out. Basically, he stalks in on this bear. Was it a peninsula bear or was it a Kodiak bear? Yeah, it, it was a peninsula bear. It's, uh, I think it's tied for number six, a 10-foot, 28-plus-inch bear, bow killed on video, walking the beach on the peninsula. I mean... It was incredible. He, he, he snuck in there with such confidence, arrows this bear. Yep. Bear's looking for him. He just basically sits down flat in the grass. And I, was, I remember thinking when he did that, I don't know that I could just stuff my face in the grass and not look to see if that bear was coming. Yeah, that, no, that, I mean, that takes a lot of confidence, so... That would be terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of that, too, was having confidence in his guide. He was with John Rydine and Freelance Outdoors and, and Lance Cromberger. You know, and those are, are two of the absolute best in the business, both of them carrying big backup rifles. And, you yeah. know, he, he had the confidence to know that he was covered. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely that definitely uh, helps. Footage um, pays a lot of tribute to past uh, big brown bear bow hunters that came before him. It's just it's a really good video if you haven't seen it. Yeah, it's incredible. It really is. It's a it's a really impressive video. And to be able to get that all on film and to execute to that level. And then just shoot an absolute dinosaur, you know? Yeah, dinosaur. There's nothing like killing a big bear. And I haven't taken a brown bear or grizzly, but I, I've taken two big black bears now. And even just killing those big black bears, he's just like, man, what an impressive animal. You just... Yeah, as much as I love to hunt mountain species, goats and sheep and ibex, there's something top tier pinnacle about shooting big bears, big mature boars. Yeah, there's yeah, just, just something special. I hope to get back up there with Jonas soon, plan it here in the next few years. Let me ask you this. What's the most extreme hunt you've done? So for me, the most extreme hunt that I've done, um, I, I would say weather-wise, was a muskox hunt in Nome about 10 years ago. Hmm. Went in there with one of my best friends, Mikey, and the day in was absolutely perfect. It was clear blue skies, zero degrees, no wind. Made the trek out about 50 miles out from town to hunt muskox that we had found set up camp on them. And in the middle of the night, an unforecasted storm come through, blew out the zipper on our tent. We woke up to two feet of snow. The temperature dropped to 28 below zero with 45 mile an hour sustained winds, making it negative 66 below. Oh, and wow. just everything that could go wrong went wrong. Like I said, the tent, the tent blew up. We couldn't get the snow machines to start. GPS wouldn't work. Rangefinder wouldn't work just an absolute butt kicker. Um, we did end up killing a couple of muskox. And just to let you know what, how cold 66 below is, trying to scream back to town to beat the darkness. And I hit the, the river bottom and it, it was full of a big snow drift from all the winds. And I had the visor on my helmet up. And when I hit that snow drift, I came to a dead stop, smashed my face into the windshield of the snow machine, <laughs> broke my nose. And when the <laughs> tip of my nose, it froze solid. So that's how cold wow. it's cold. <laughs> but as far as extreme hunts go, that was by far the most extreme conditions that I've ever been in. Just one of those hunts that was brutal and just absolutely miserable uh, because of the environment that we were in. That's crazy. So did were you at the miserable level? Were you like, you know what, this, I'm not having fun. Yeah, well, I'm, by the time everything was done and, and we got everything and we were on our way back, the, the fun meter had been pegged for sure. Uh, <laughs> Mike and I were both just absolutely done. You're like, this is stupid. Yeah, and at the end of it, Mike was like, "That that's it, one and done. I'm never going muskox hunting with you again. <laughs> you know, and, and it, it's kind of like we, we say the same thing after off mountain goats hunt every <laughs> Like, I am never doing that again. That is dumb. I hurt. And, you know, 365 days is a long time to forget about the misery. Oh, man. Isn't it really? <laughs> yeah. I've been on three more muskox hunts since then. Uh, uh, but true, he has not gone on any of those since. So, you see, he honored his word then of never going. He, he did. So, like I said, I, I surround myself with people that are a lot smarter than me. So. <laughs> oh, man. That, that's so <laughs> glutton funny. For punishment. Yeah, glutton for punishment. You know what? This has been... You know, so fun uh, talking through this stuff with you and, and being able to share some laughs and some of these extreme mountain hunts and getting to know you a little bit better and, and learning some of your strategies about doll sheep. Man, if there's one thing I could say, it's like when you do these extreme mountain hunts and you absolutely work your tail off and you leave it all on the floor, so to speak, 
man, there's nothing more gratifying than getting home, sharing the stories, and when everyone's safe and well, just laughing with your hunting buddy about how stupid it was and how yeah. and how miserable it was. And like, for example, like I'm still fighting poison oak. My little girls ask me every day, Dad, is a poison oak gone? gone? Dad, don't hug me. I don't want to get poison oak. <laughs> and I, it's like two, almost two weeks later, I'm back from this black bear hunt and I'm still paying for it. Yep. Just barely got off prednisone. Yeah, that, that pack out on that doll sheep last year, I spent six months limping you know, with a torn MCL, you know, just because I was dumb. Yeah, yeah but I'd, I'd probably be the same. I don't want to climb all the way back in here just to pack more. Did you full body cape it or why did you have so much weight? No, just, I mean, on a doll sheep size wise, you're looking at, you know, anywhere from 60, 70, 80 pounds of boned out meat. Gotcha. And then you've got another 25 pounds of horns and, and shoulder tape. Yep. And then horns are heavy. Went in with about 40 pounds of camp, you know, 40, yeah. 45 pounds of camp here on my back. So did you leave all your food somewhere or did you throw it away or did you pack it yeah, up? Yeah, so I, any, anything that I could dump, I did. I ate really good that night and then ate really good that next morning, you know, did everything I could to lighten my load. And then because I knew I was walking a river valley out, you know, I didn't take any water with me because I could drink the water along the river valley. So did everything I could to lighten my load up, but I was still... I know that I was north of 130, which is just a ridiculous amount of weight. Yeah, that's too heavy. That's not that's not good for your body. <laughs> but yeah, just the, the dumb ranger in me and the no quit. I just kept going. You know, it, it's only 6.2 miles to the road. It, right. It's only 6.2. But did, did you at least yeah, take breaks? Take your pack off and take breaks. Oh yeah, no, I had to with that kind of weight and and, and being in the mountains in the distance. Yeah, no, I absolutely had to take breaks. Well, at least you're smart enough no to take tough breaks. Die one shot and done for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, hey, man, I, I don't want to take up any more of your day. We've been about 55 minutes here. This was a this was actually phenomenal podcast talking about extreme mountain hunting, a little bit about strategies of hunting doll sheep and, and these extreme mountain hunts and what's driven your passion to get there. And, you know, hopefully this gets you guys excited uh, about some adventures you guys got coming up. And you don't necessarily have to go international to get these kind of adventures. You can do some of these things locally. And it, it builds character and it builds you as a hunter and then also a human being. So thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, and we'll catch you on the next one.